Reflections on Life at the End of Time, Part 3, the third talk in the series, was presented by Jack Crabtree on July 12, 2015, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a nonprofit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction, all other rights reserved. So we're going to continue on with some reflections on life at the end of the present time. Started a couple weeks ago. This is just very casual and formal, talking about some of the things I've been thinking about, some of the things that I've been reflecting on. So far, we've simply, well, I spent most of last week responding to a question that got raised the first week, and that is, Jack, you used to lean more toward an amillennial perspective, and the amillennial perspective is that basically the thousand-year reign of Christ is happening now, and the next thing to happen is like the end of the world when Jesus will return and eternity begins clean, simple, straightforward, sane, reasonable, rational. It's just a nice, neat package to believe. So why am I no longer inclined to think that? And I'm rather inclined to think that all these bizarre things that premillennialists believe are going to happen at the end of time. What is it that has changed my mind to take that seriously? And I suggested last week that I never really, until the question got raised two weeks ago, I never really thought about it. But Thinking back, I realized that part of what motivated me was premillennialism is just weird. And I mentioned that last week. There's a battle where a satanically motivated army seeks to destroy the people of Israel, not once but twice before the end of the created order. Once after Jesus has been physically present, has come to reign over Israel for a thousand years, the second time a battle will occur. Weird, just totally weird. God grants help to righteous Israel during these battles, partially at least by coming down and supernaturally defeating the enemies of God in Israel. We read about that stuff in the Old Testament, but do we really seriously think it's going to happen in our future? If you believe the stuff in the Old Testament, that's okay, that's religion. But we're talking history now. Is God in history going to come down and supernaturally defend Israel? That's to believe something pretty weird. There's going to be a great earthquake at the end that's going to transform the whole topography of Israel. Really? Great hailstones are going to fall and destroy whole cities, apparently. Really? That's Hollywood stuff. And people on earth who believe in Jesus are going to be snatched up into the air and meet Jesus in the air and be transformed into immortal beings at some point. This is really kind of wild and crazy stuff. So the amillennial view seems really tame and sane by comparison. Life goes on with this invisible reign of Jesus for a thousand years, and then we come to the end. Jesus comes back, takes us out of here, and there's a whole new heaven and a new earth. Very simple, straightforward. Granted, there's a supernatural dimension to that, but it's under control, right? It's not wild and crazy supernatural. But we have to put the weirdness of the premillennialism in perspective, and I want to take a little bit of time to do that before we move on. 
To believe in modern science today requires us to believe in completely invisible black holes, right? That are huge cosmic vacuum cleaners that are sucking up the entire universe bit by bit. Really? Are you going to believe that? That's what science is suggesting. To believe in modern science is to believe that the greater part of cosmic reality is invisible dark matter, invisible, undetectable by any ordinary means of observation or perception. So really, are we going to believe against all empirical evidence that there's dark matter out there, right? To believe in modern science is to believe that all biological life resulted from some accident that happened to form exactly the right combination of proteins. Really? To believe in modern science is to believe that all the land masses are floating on a nearly liquid molten soup underneath them. To believe in modern theories of global warming is to believe that the ice caps are going to completely melt. Really? That's pretty crazy. But note that some of the same people who would laugh at the premillennialist predictions of the future have absolutely no problem believing that if we don't do something, the ice caps are going to melt. So what we find weird and bizarre, and there's all kinds of weird and bizarre things that are predicted by different disciplines, by different people who know stuff about the future. If you look at history, all kinds of weird stuff has happened in history. Bizarre coincidences. If you read Plutarch's story of Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great conquered the world because of a series of coincidences. He could have lost a number of battles except exactly the right thing happened at exactly the right time to make the victory go to him and not to his enemy. Really? So history is chock full of weird coincidences, weird, bizarre things. We don't normally really have any problem believing weird and bizarre things, but we have a very difficult time believing weird things if we subject ourselves to the contempt, the mockery, and the derision of other people. And the older I get, the more I realize what a powerful, powerful weapon mockery is. On more than one occasion, you and I have been intimidated into rejecting a point of view or a perspective or a value or something, at least growing silent about it because you can just feel it in the air. Everyone around you is going to deride you if you espouse that point of view or hold that value. A very powerful tool. Mockery and division is a very powerful weapon against any idea, but Satan has trained mankind to use it to great effect against that which is true. And I think that's what I was growing up as I was coming into my adult brain and worrying about being intellectually respectable, as I was in my 20s, as I was worrying about being intellectually respectable, it was just so clear that the really responsible people with intellectual integrity, they wouldn't believe this wild and crazy premillennial stuff. So somehow I had to get past that the obstacle of fear of being held in contempt and mocked for that belief before I was willing to even consider it. So I'm not going to make a case for premillennialism here in this series. That's what Ron asked me. That's not really my purpose. 
but it is important enough to explain why am I leaning in that direction now rather than the other way? And I want to talk about the two things that kind of change my perspective here. I couldn't, even if I wanted to, I couldn't give an adequate defense of premillennialism because I'm still a real novice when it comes to biblical prophecy. I acknowledge that. There's a lot I don't know. And what I do know, I've got at through the New Testament, not by studying the Old Testament. So I'm not in a good position to give you a defense of the premillennial position. But any questions that you have, I'd be glad to entertain them along the way. But what is it that woke me from my dogmatic slumbers as a would-be amillennialist and kind of shook me out of my complacency in amillennialism? The first one, and this was probably the most important of all, was coming to understand that the New Testament does not take the perspective that I had absorbed from evangelical culture. It doesn't take the perspective that the promises to the Jews are fulfilled by the salvation of mankind that comes through Jesus. That's what I had always been told. You belong to the church, you're part of the new Israel. You are part of the church, you are the true and authentic people of God. The Jews maybe used to sort of be the people of God, but they blew it. God gave them a chance and they blew their chance and now God has replaced them with Jew and Gentile believers in Jesus, a new body, a new group of people that are now the true people of God. I had just absorbed that and taken that for granted, assumed that that's what the Bible taught. But the more I studied the New Testament, the more I realized that's not what Paul's thinking. That's not his perspective. That's not how he's looking at that. That's not the implications of the gospel that Paul has in mind. I had even read something like Romans 11. You know, this is the time of the Gentiles. He has broken off the branches of unbelieving Jews in order to graft the Gentiles in. But one day, one day he will graft back in the branches of Judaism into the original root of the tree that comes from Abraham. But how did I interpret that? Well, they'll become Christians in the end. They will become what I am. They can get in on this deal too, and over the generations, over the decades, they have not believed. It's been predominantly, almost exclusively, Gentiles who have been believers and have become part of the people of God down through the centuries. But God has in store a time in history where now he will return to work with the Jews, and they now will come in, and they will believe. Now, that is certainly part of what he's saying. That is true. But what I missed is when they get grafted back into the promises that God made to them, it's all of the promises that God made to them that God is going to fulfill, not just the blessing of Abraham that comes to all the children of Abraham. But there's a very distinctive place and role and story for a select group of people from Abraham, namely what we call the Jews, who have a lot of promises that have been made to them, and God's going to fulfill all those promises that he made to them in the end. And that's part of what he's going to do when the age of the Gentiles is complete, is then turn his attention after thousands of years of turning his back to them. He's going to turn back toward his people, the Jews, and remain faithful to every promise that he made to them. That's Paul's perspective. 
And it has just become clear to me over the last several years that that's the perspective of the New Testament. Well, notice amillennialism is the only option if you start from the, the assumption that God doesn't have anything to do with the Jews any longer. So what about all those promises he made to the Jews? Well, they were simply metaphors or symbols or figures of speech that somehow, by some way of thinking, got fulfilled when Jesus died for the sins of mankind and offered salvation to all of mankind. So Jesus promised them the land. Well, that's God promising the world to the church. Well, he gave coordinates. He gave boundaries. Well, yeah, but it was just a symbol, just a metaphor, just a picture of all of creation that is ultimately going to belong to the people who believe in him. But everywhere you turned, I had to try to find some way to take these passages that seemed to be talking about what God was promising his people, the Jews, and turn them in to a promise that he was making to mankind, Jew and Gentiles alike. I was always a little uncomfortable with it because it sure seemed to me I was doing a lot of shoehorning. I was doing a lot of mental gymnastics, a lot of hand-waving to kind of make that work, but we are the true Israel, so what are you going to do? I guess the other option is to say, boy, the Old Testament, what a bunch of junk that is. That doesn't make any sense. But short of that, you have to somehow assume that there are good answers and good explanations for why these promises to the Jews in the Old Testament don't really mean what they sound like they're saying. They're not really actually promises about history and land and geography and economics and health and prosperity to Israel. They're actually really about spiritual salvation to all of mankind in eternity. That's a long jump, but I was quite willing to make that jump as long as I thought I had no choice. And I didn't think I had a choice because I had this prior a priori assumption that God is done with the Jews. God has now turned his attention to the Gentiles to give the true promise that he had been the only promise he was really ever concerned about anyway to them, the promise of eternal life. And the only kind of neat thing is that in the end, Jews are going to get in on that as well. Well, that's the best I could do given that assumption. But in the last several years, I've begun to realize that assumption is not an assumption shared by the New Testament authors. That was foisted on us by our training in Christian culture. And reading Joel Richardson's book, When a Jew Rules the World, if you're interested in the role of replacement theology and its relationship to anti-Semitism, and how powerful effect it has had on theology. The last third of that book is really excellent. It had, this replacement theology has a really, really long history. It began right at the beginning of institutionalized Christianity, and I was an heir to that long, long tradition. Well, the second thing I've already begun to talk about, and that is noticing the detail of some of the Old Testament prophecies that clearly have to do with the history, political life of the people of Israel, not the salvation of mankind. It's not what they're talking about. They're talking about their life in the land, their life together, the, what kind of society God will give them, what kind of civilization they will live in, and that's what the prophecy is clearly focused on. 
So the more I read my Old Testament, the more I was confronted with the fact that these prophecies, if you look at them in their detail, they don't talk about the salvation of mankind. They're talking about something else. So what am I going to do with that? And finally, I got so uncomfortable with that, I had to cry uncle. Okay, God is making promises to the Jews about their future in the history of this world and their political life together and the geopolitics that concern Israel as a nation in the here and now. Just a couple of examples. I remember one really stood out to me. It was in Genesis, reading for Gutenberg. And we were reading through Genesis and you know, just reading the whole book quickly. And I ran across that passage where Paul makes a promise to Abraham. He's promising him the land. It's the land of the, and I, I can't, Jebusites and you know, all those ites. He might as well have been giving them GPS coordinates for the land. It's a very definite, specific, detailed promise. And I had studied the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the what? And the question there is, is it the world or is it the land? And that's a live question when you look at that. Is he speaking from a Jewish perspective and talking about who's going to inherit the land? Or, as our, most of our English translations have it, is he really talking about the world? Well, I was assuming it was the world, because I'm a good Christian, right? So I was assuming it was the world, but what is Jesus referring to then? Where is he getting this idea that blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the world? Where do you find that promise in the Old Testament? And I was looking there at Abraham, and what is he promising Abraham? He's promising him a very, very definite piece of real estate with very definite boundaries. Jesus, are you getting this from that or things like that? in the Old Testament, that's a stretch. If you're really going to use the land as a metaphor, why give GPS coordinates? You see what I'm saying? We have a sense for what makes a good metaphor or what makes a good symbol and what doesn't. And it's not a good symbol when you start describing the details of something in such particularity that you distract from the basic point that you're making. It's pretty clear to me that God was not promising the world to Abraham. He was promising a very particular and specific piece of real estate. Okay, that started me thinking and began me in the process of rethinking how I should, well, basically rethinking my amillennialism. These don't seem to be promises of spiritual salvation. They seem more particular than that. And then there's that famous passage in Ezekiel 40 through 48 where you have a temple being predicted in excruciating detail. That's a symbol of heaven? At least if it's a symbol of heaven, then have at it. Go and find out what each and every one of those details is an allegory for, or is a symbol for, or is an analogy for. There's a whole lot of explaining we have to do about what eternity is going to be like in the light of the vision of Ezekiel's temple. That's one way you could go, and I don't know anyone who can successfully do that. I wouldn't even try. The other option is pretty simple. He's describing a temple that's going to be a temple, and it's going to have these dimensions. It's going to have this floor plan to it. That seems to be the straightforward way to take those chapters. So those two things woke me from my dogmatic slumbers, recognizing that the church replacing Israel is not 
a New Testament doctrine, not a New Testament teaching, and recognizing having enough familiarity with Old Testament prophecy to realize that it just flat doesn't work to keep saying every chapter after the next chapter after the next chapter, oh, this is just a symbol, this is just a metaphor of eternal salvation. No, we're talking about the future. We're talking about politics. We're talking about history to come. Before I open it up, the other change in my thinking is that it seems to me that the primary focus of prophetic prediction, and, and here I'm, remember I'm a novice, so I'm out of my depth, but it does seem to me, appear to me, that the focus of prophetic prediction are the very end of this present time. It's often called the day of the Lord. Always before, I was inclined, whenever I saw the day of the Lord, to assume, okay, the day of the Lord, he's talking about the day of the Lord coming, which day is it? Is it the day when this calamity happened to Israel, or this other calamity happened in Israel, or this other calamity happened, or this other? There must be 50 days of the Lord throughout the history of Israel. I wonder which one this is. And granted, the day of the Lord can be any time that the Lord comes and makes himself known to his people, either in judgment or in salvation or whatever. Granted, the phrase is capable of meaning that. But what's becoming clearer to me is when the prophets talk about the day of the Lord, they mean the day of the Lord, not just a day of the Lord. They mean the day of the Lord. There is one day of the Lord coming which stands out above all the rest of them, and it's this day that's the one that Revelation calls the day of the wrath of the Lamb. It's the final decisive moment in the history of this peculiar people, the Jews. I like to call it Fisher cut bait time, where God is going to come and say, you're either with me or you're against me. If you throw in your lot with me, I will save you, and you will enter into the earthly historical kingdom of God that he's going to establish under his king, Jesus. If you're against me, you're going to be judged. And on that day, every Jew who refuses to believe or is not destined to believe is going to die on that day, is going to be judged. And only those who have believed or those whom God has destined to come to belief at the coming of Jesus, which I think is also a possibility, but only those people who end up believing are going to survive the day of the Lord. And what's left behind are the remnant of Jews who will be the people of the kingdom of God in the land, in Israel, with Jerusalem as the capital, with Jesus reigning as king, and they will have hegemony over the entire world for a thousand years, however long that is. But that day of the Lord seems to be the focal point of the Old Testament prophecies. Next thing I want to take up then is, if we are at the end of the present time, why shouldn't we sell everything, don a bedsheet, and go up to the top of the nearest mountain? I want to talk about that, but before I do that, any comments or questions? Or Thanks, Jack. This is one of the things that's been rolling around in my head for a couple of years. It's, how can I say, partly because some of the teaching here has got my brain thinking in different ways. Where do you think some of the ideology with the omni view came from? Is it just a distrust of the Jews or so on? Because like I'm looking at, I've done some study on Martin Luther and he basically 
is sometimes criticized because he said he wanted to, but got frustrated that they're hard-necked and just wondered if this is some of the no problem that came up from that. In other words, the Jews aren't accepting the gospel, so God has abandoned them. Well, I do think that ideas can be diabolical without people being committed to evil. So I think the idea of replacement theology is a diabolical idea. And as it happens to be the basis and the foundation for actual evil people being committed to evil and literally hating Jews for that reason. And I think we've seen that certainly throughout history. But not everybody who's bought into this anti-Semitic doctrine is personally committed to evil kind of bigotry and chauvinism. I think there are a number of people who are very kind-hearted, merciful, loving people have just been taught a doctrine that they think through to the logical conclusions of that. By the logical conclusions, I don't mean that you should kill Jews. Since God has rejected them, you should reject them too. I don't mean that. I mean, that's obviously absurd. But they believe the logical conclusion that namely, we need to read our Bible, as I did, we need to read our Bible in such a way that we don't look to see what role the Jews play, because obviously they've been rejected. Yeah, well, the way I was brought up a lot is the idea, well, the Jews blew it, mm -hmm. and so it's up to us. It's like we are getting these things that the Jews were supposed to because they're just not playing the game. And the more I think about it, the more I'm saying, like, where in the earth did this idea come from? Right, yeah. I, I don't know enough, but it may very well be that part of what underlay that was a kind of genuine prejudice, a genuine hostility to the Jews by Gentiles. Gentiles began to take over Christianity. They're the ones who invented, institutionalized Christianity and established it. And jealousy, I don't know, who knows? Human beings are human beings. And all of us need to be savvy to how much irrational factors, psychological factors, bubble up into what doctrines I'm willing to believe and what doctrines I'm not willing to believe. I think that's what John had in mind in 1 John when he's talking about false teachers and he says, test the spirits to see if they're of God. And as we were going through 1 John, what I suggested is, I think what he's saying is, look at why that particular teaching is appealing to that person. Why does it appeal to them? Is it appealing to wisdom and goodness and righteousness and humility in them? Or is it appealing to something uglier than that? Well, you can see how replacement theology would appeal to ugly anti-Semitism. I read a quote in uh, Richardson. Hitler made the argument, God has rejected them. Therefore, we should reject them. Yeah, and it's an interesting point. I don't know, it may be a little off-subject, but Hitler was very much for going to church. And there were quite a few people who just like, oh, God is blessing Germany because we're getting strong economically. And Hitler was very involved in that, at least until he could kind of really show his true colors. Yeah. I got a little question about the origins of replacement theology, if I remember correctly. And the Gutenberg curriculum wasn't one of great books we read, something by Justin Martyr, where that's pretty much the origins of replacement theology. 
yeah, certainly the first book that we read that advocates that. I don't know whether that's the origin of it, because he may be simply reflecting something that's already begun to... Yeah, I'm trying to figure out if either he popularized it or if he started it or where it exactly began. Yeah, I can't answer that, Michael. I don't know. But notice how early that is. I would give you a date, but I don't know. <laughs> when is yes. one thirty? Yeah. Yeah, because uh, Justin Martyr was one of the church fathers, or right, right. evil, bad, or second generation. Yeah. Thank you. I have two questions for you. First of all, are you seeing the temple as it's described in detail in Ezekiel? Are you seeing that as part of the millennial kingdom? Yes. Okay, so that being the case, could the reason why the prophetic focus is so on the day of the Lord at the start of the millennium be because what's most important for them is seeing God as a God who fulfills his promises? Right, I think so. And with the specific promise of the temple being built in that way, being fulfilled, that it's kind of like everything else falls from that? Yeah, if I followed all that, yes, exactly. Because... The Old Testament prophets are prophesying to God's people, the Jews. We're eavesdropping. Right. So, you know, we might sit back here and say, well, it doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, who am I? (laughs) God's not answerable to me. If I'm eavesdropping on a conversation that he's having with his own people about his faithfulness to the promises that he's made to his people, that's important to me because it tells me what kind of God we're dealing with here. So in that sense, it's vitally important to me, but it's not directly important to me in that it's a promise that's been made to me and my kin that is going to be fulfilled. It's a promise that was made to them that's going to be fulfilled. Yeah, and in a sense, it sounds even more important than the prophetic focus being on the end of created reality and living forever and all that, because none of that matters if God doesn't keep his promises. Exactly, and that's where my focus has shifted, is to recognize how much the emphasis is shifted onto the millennial kingdom rather than eternity. Eternity is a huge big deal, but eternity kind of takes care of itself. The whole creation is destroyed, and there's a new heavens and a new earth, and we are brand new, and then who knows what that's going to be like. In fact, there's a continuity between our lives now and the millennial kingdom. There may not be the same level of continuity into eternity. All things are new. This may be, I'm still going to be me, but who knows what other aspects of reality that I can't even dream of today become a part of my existence in eternity. Yeah. I want to make sure I'm getting that last statement you made before you took questions was about Jesus coming back, gains the kingdom ship, the believers are his servants, and I, th- I think you've mentioned in the last couple of weeks that they are transformed mm-hmm. at that point. Okay. And then right before you took questions, you said that the Jews will be on earth and he will be their king. Yeah, the, the remnant yeah. of Jews who believe will be on earth. Okay, and, be their and that's king. the part I didn't catch up. It was the remnant of Jews that believed or if they had a one chance before the transformation of the church and the kingdom of Christ that they had the chance to profess faith or if they were just Jewish people that one more time said, I don't know, and that they're still left in the millennial kingdom. Well, I'm speculating here, but I've always been intrigued by the passage in Zechariah, I think. Yeah, that's it. 
where they will see, they will look upon him whom they pierced and they will mourn. That appears to be as an after Jesus returns, they will look upon the very man that their forefathers crucified and they will mourn. And it sure sounds to me like a kind of response of repentance to me. So I think that might be a different group of people than the Jews who go into the end of time already believing. They already believe. They're already one of us. In fact, it's kind of a question for me. Are they snatched up in the air and transformed in the twinkling of an eye like we are? It would make sense. (laughs) They're in Christ. On the one hand. On the other hand, this is weird. This is a weird story, and God has a particular place for Jews. It is not unthinkable to me that a believing Jew during that time, the 144,000 perhaps, are actually saved, rescued during the day of the wrath of the Lamb, and will go on living in the millennial kingdom that Jesus is going to establish, and that they are an exception That is, they don't get transformed, take on immortality, and reign with him in the same way that other believers in Jesus do. Their role is different. Their role is to remain in their mortality a little bit longer to be the people in the kingdom of God. On the other hand, it wouldn't at all surprise me if they take on immortality. And so who are the 144,000? Who are the people that are going to people the kingdom of God. They were unbelievers when Jesus came back. But it had been, God had chosen them, had elected them to have a heart of repentance. And so they repent at the return of Jesus, and then they become sanctified. God pours out his spirit, and they become a sanctified people who are the only survivors who become the kingdom of Inhabitants kingdom in the of millennial kingdom. Yeah, okay. exactly. So it's still a debate whether or not, a, let's say, a Messianic Jew before the great and terrible day of the Lord. It makes sense that they would be immortalized. Right. Okay. But it. Yeah. But I don't know yeah. for sure. Yeah. The other thing I'm not sure about, it's not necessarily the case that immortality is a one-phase process. Are we, for all of eternity, going to be like we will be after Jesus returns? Possibly. Not knowing what that is, it's entirely possible. And I'm inclined to picture that as being like Jesus was after his resurrection, that we will be like that. So it's very human-like on the one hand, and yet not. We're not restricted by, we're not subject to death and the same things we were subject to before. The other possibility is, and it comes back to Kelly's point, there's so little focus on eternity All kinds of things could happen in the transition from the millennial kingdom to eternity that the Bible doesn't tell us. And one of those things could be when Jesus comes back, we will be transformed into immortality in the first phase of our immortality, only to enter phase two when all of creation is destroyed and we are given the new bodies that will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. The kind of stuff that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 may not be what happens at the return of Jesus. That may be what happens later, at the end of the millennium, when we enter the eternal kingdom. So I was listening to what you had to say, and I had a question posed to me by my cousin. She wanted to know why God seemed to establish the law in a way that 
ordered for certain groups of people who had committed specific sins to be stoned. And she was confused as to why possibly Jesus would have tried to prevent the stoning of the adulteress later in time. So I'm just wondering what would be the correct explanation in your mind as to why Jesus would have prevented that stoning, whereas other adulteresses in the past would have been stoned? Well, what I don't know, I don't think what anybody knows, is to what extent had Israel faithfully followed the requirements of the Mosaic Covenant up to that point? And I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that. It's one thing to have it in the books. It's another thing to actually have it be a daily practice. But let's assume that they did. Well, I don't see how they could have. I just think they had to be lax because there's a whole subclass of sinners in Israel that Jesus goes and hangs out with, remember? in the God. How come they're not stoned? I think it's because sin and evil and depravity and immorality is so rampant that it's only the Pharisees who are fixed on keeping the law. So you don't have enough social acceptance of those practices for that to actually be practiced in mass. So that doesn't explain why Jesus wouldn't do it. But I think the reason is we have to understand that the Mosaic Covenant, by its very nature, is not a covenant between me and God. Let's say I'm a Jew back in the time of Jesus. It's not a covenant between me and God. It's not God coming along and saying, okay, Jack, or whatever your Hebrew equivalent is, you do this and I will do this for you. It's God coming to the people as a people group, as a nation, and making a covenant with them. Many of the requirements could not possibly be kept by one individual. They're either kept by the whole nation or they're not being kept at all because they have to do with the social and political and national life of the people. So Jesus is confronting a situation where the nation of Israel is not keeping the covenant that God made with them as a people group. So he has a certain kind of latitude. Well, are you suggesting that we all get together now and love one another? <laughs> are you suggesting that we all get together now and keep the covenant together in mass and fulfill our obligation as the people of God? Well, that's not what really what they were saying. Right. It was a whole different agenda that they had, and so he called them on their false agenda. Okay, yeah, stoner. If, how about the one among you who's never sinned, why don't you cast the first stone? I mean, a very brilliant kind of, I think, a very brilliant kind of way of calling their bluff. Uh, thanks for the context. I appreciate it. Hey, Jack. So the Jesus is hanging out with Jews, and the Gentile woman comes seeking healing, and he tells her, well, I'm not here to minister to you. I'm here to minister to my people. And she says, well, even the dogs get the crumbs on the master's table. So replacement theology, look at that episode and say, well, too bad if she just waited a few more years, she wouldn't have had to grovel so much. Right, right. What you're suggesting is that, if I'm understanding you right, is that her attitude would still be appropriate throughout all time. Yeah. Even though there is no obstacle to God granting her grace and mercy any more than a Jew, there is still a sense in which this side of eternity, and maybe even the other side of eternity, it's still appropriate for her to show deference to the people of God for what God has made them in history? Yeah, I think so. I, I don't know about the other side of eternity. Right. It, I'm inclined to think that the distinction between Jew and Gentile is utterly irrelevant in eternity. Mm. That it's part of history. Mm where 
the Jews have a distinctive role. But once we leave history as we know it, then all bets are off. We enter a whole new ballgame in the eternal kingdom of God. I don't think we will rule with him in the eternal kingdom of God. All that stuff has to do with the millennium. I don't think it makes any sense in eternity. I don't think we know enough about eternity to even make sense out of all that stuff. So that's why I think what's being described is the millennial kingdom. But yeah, in the millennium, mm-hmm. notice, the we nations. will be eating the crumbs. Yeah. The whole world is going to benefit from what Jesus is doing in and around and through his people in the land. Every God-fearing person in the world is going to benefit from that. But in a sense, yeah, it's the crumbs off the table. One more. I do want to take up this other question before the day's over. In a book I read about that dealt with some of this, the author was very apologetic about replacement theology, but he didn't have the interpretation of the Old Testament promises that you do. So he sounded to me sort of like a lily-livered Christian. He still didn't want to make the Jews bow to Jesus as king and Lord. And there's a sort of an undercurrent that I may have picked up in his writings that he and his, all the people he quotes that share his view, don't recognize that, that God can make promises to someone and they're not the same as being involved in the covenant with someone. So if God were to say, Abraham, these are gonna be your kids, and Abraham had become faithless, those would still be his kids. So doesn't a lot of this hinge on our understanding that God can make a promise to the Jews which they are not in covenant with? Yeah, great point. That's a great point. Yeah, that was probably part of my transition as well because early in my Christian experience, it made all the sense in the world that God would make an offer to the Jews, they would reject it, and so he would reject them because isn't everything about what we do in our freedom? Isn't that what this is all about? It's a whole lot of divine offers, and if we take it, great. If we don't, tough luck. That's sort of how I understood my salvation back in the day, and it got reinforced by what Christian said all around me, is that he's making you this offer, but you don't expect him to do it for you, do you? (laughs) You're an equal party in the contract. Exactly. Exactly. But that's not how it reads so many times. No, it's not. And not only not with the Jews and not with us. Yes, we have to choose. And choose we will if God has chosen us. God will be faithful. Even if we are faithless, God will remain faithful. That's the clear teaching of the scripture. So, yeah, exactly. That once we have a better grasp of God and his sovereignty and what exactly he's doing in history and how much he governs and directs and determines history, that changes everything. As long as you think he's just one more of us making deals with us, then replacement theology makes a ton of sense. Okay, why not go up on a mountain? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that we have an example of Jesus. If there was anybody who knew how the end of his life on earth was impending, it's Jesus. He knew that Jesus was going to betray him. He knew what that meant. He was going to be scourged and held in contempt, mocked, and ultimately crucified. He knew it was the end for him. But interestingly, he was eager to celebrate the Passover with his disciples the night just before his arrest. He knew he was going to be arrested. But he was eager to celebrate the Passover with them. Why? 
you and I, the inclination is to think, well, if we're that close to the end, what's the point? It's all futile. There's no need. There's no use to doing it because it's just all going to be over the next day. But Jesus was not thinking it's all going to be over. So why not? What is it that he's thinking that we're not inclined to think? We don't know exactly what kind of continuity there's going to be between our life here and now and the world during the millennium. We don't know exactly what kind of continuity there is. But I think what's becoming clearer and clearer to me is there is a continuity. There's a connection. Notice that when Jesus raised from the dead, go to the 21st chapter of John. I'll just appeal to your memory here. But remember that scene where Peter's out fishing and Jesus shows up on the side of the lake and he joins them. Doesn't he replicate the miracle? Am I right about the put your nets in over here? I think he replicates that miracle. And then they come in and he eats fish with them. He builds a fire for them and they eat fish. He goes for a walk with Peter. Peter, do you love me? And the incredible thing is how everything that he does during that time is connected with stuff, events that have happened prior to his death and resurrection. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Is a chance for Peter to repeat the three times that he denied him, this time he will not deny him. It's an opportunity to not deny him. And notice the humility that Peter has this time, not the bravado. I would never, I would die for you. Do you love me, Peter? Well, I kind of think so, I hope. <laughs> I really hope that I do. Do you, Peter? I hope so. Do you, Peter? Peter has learned his lesson. He's got the humility that he needs to have. So Jesus knows enough about Peter's history to be able to connect intimately with that history even though Jesus has gone beyond this present age and has taken on a whole new mode of existence. But his whole new mode of existence is not a negation of everything that he was and everything that he did and everything that he said and everything that he knew. He takes all that with him into his new state of being and continues right where he left off. I would assume exactly the same will be true for us. We're going to take everything that we have done, everything that we've experienced, we're going to take that with us, and we will pick up right where we left off in the relationships that we had before, with the knowledge that we've gained before, with the understanding that we've gained before, and so on. So there's absolutely no, at least this transition into the millennium, there's absolutely no reason to think that the end of time is this great negation of our prior existence. It's not an erasing of everything and making a blank slate and saying, okay, now you're immortal, start over. That's how I've always thought of it. And it always leads you to kind of think, well, the end of time is kind of leads to kind of futility, doesn't it? Why do anything? You read that passage in 1 Corinthians, we know in part, but then we will know as he as he knows and as we are known, well then, I think I'll just kick back and relax and stop studying. I'm going to know it all in the end anyway. Well, that may be true in eternity. Maybe that transition, it would make sense to have that kind of perspective, but it won't for other reasons. But in this transition, it makes no sense at all. We are going to reign with Christ. We will have an assignment. 
We will have responsibility. We will have obligations. And I need to be equipped for those obligations. When am I going to get equipped for them? Like now. What I'm doing now, the choices I'm making, the things I'm learning, the things I'm coming to know, the insights I'm gaining now are the things I'm going to take with me that are going to equip me and be the resources that I use in discharging whatever responsibilities are given me in the millennium. So far from being a reason to kick back and not do nothing, it's a reason to work all the harder and to be all the more diligent and to be all the more focused on learning what I need to learn and knowing what I need to know. Part of what's beginning to make sense to me, remember those parables? The parable about the guy who's given some money and is supposed to go out and trade with it while the owner goes off to a far land to receive a kingdom. And one guy hides it in a handkerchief and buries it. Another guy makes five. Another guy makes 10. Another guy makes, I don't remember the numbers. And Jesus comes back, and in one version, I think it's the Luke version, I may be the Matthew version, but I think it's the Luke version, the guy who has gained five minas with his mina, he says, well done, good and faithful servant, I put you in charge of five cities. And the guy who gained 10, well done, I put you in charge of 10 cities, and the other one. So there's a proportional reward to what they've accomplished while he was gone. Well, That's always been bizarre. Five cities in eternity? (laughs) What am I going to do with five cities in eternity? What is that all about? In the millennium, that makes a lot more sense. And I think that's probably what he was talking about, that there will be a proportional reward in the millennium, here and now in history, for how faithful and responsible we have been in the here and now. As we've equipped ourselves to reign with him, he will give us a responsibility to reign with him proportional to how faithful we've been given with what we have been given now. I think that must be what Jesus is talking about in that parable. Eternal salvation, eternal glory, eternal life doesn't seem to be doled out proportionally. That seems to be something that we all get just the same. There's no proportionality there. But in the millennium, we're still here and now in history. We're not talking about eternity. We're talking about now and what I will do and what responsibility that will be given to me in eternity, it seems like Jesus is saying is going to be proportional to how faithful I have been to deal with the truth that I've been given now before he comes back. So it doesn't make any sense to sell everything I have and climb up a mountain naked or otherwise with a bedsheet or otherwise. It doesn't make any sense. We've got work to do because life is going to go on. History is going to go on. It's not over. And I need to be all the more diligent to prepare myself for the responsibility that lies ahead that I'm going to be given by my Lord and Master. Technical difficulties resulted in a very brief loss of the teaching at this point. Where and everywhere, all the attributes of God now belong to me. What an incredibly silly idea. I can't believe that I'm even admitting that I would think such a thing. But I think that's how I've been thinking about this thing. And anything I do now pales in comparison to omniscience and omnipotence. If I'm going to be omniscient and omnipotent, why do I have to work so hard now? It doesn't really make any sense. But I'm not. I'm not going to be omniscient. I'm not going to be omnipotent. I'm going to take with me what I have gained in this lifetime. I'm going to take that into the millennial kingdom. That's what I will have to work with. So... Let's get on with it.
It's getting hot, and it's almost out of time. Any final questions or comments? Yeah. Just a couple more passages to make your point. There was one time, I think it was during when the rich young ruler came to ask Jesus about eternal life. How do I gain eternal life? And he said, well, give up all your possessions and follow me. And he went away kind of sad. Peter asked him, what about us, Lord? We gave up everything. He says something about you're not only going to get it all back, but you're going to get that multiplied in the next age. Mm -hmm. Again, that sounds like I think there's, that's there's some kind of earthly commitment there. I think that's exactly right. In another place, he says that you're going to be ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Exactly. It's on the night of his death. Yeah, he, he talks about them. Don't you know that you're going to be ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel? And from my older perspective, I look at that and go, 12 tribes of Israel in eternity? In eternity where in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile? How do you get 12 tribes out of that? If you don't even have any Jews, how do you have 12 tribes? And I would always just punt. Well, I don't know. I don't know what he's saying. But if it's the millennium, look how much sense that makes. Yeah, you're going to co-reign with me, and your peculiar privilege is going to be each one of you is going to rule over one of the tribes of Israel in the millennial kingdom. Well, then that makes sense. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means to rule over a tribe of Israel, but at least it makes sense out of the claim that he's making in a way that I could never make any sense out of it. Just one more question. Mm -hmm. Just for clarification, it sounds like it's possible that one could diligently work to pursue the truth now in this life and end up looking kind of like the guy who went in the bedsheet up the mountain. Like, you could lose relationships and resources, and you could lose a lot of stuff, I guess, through your diligent pursuit of righteousness. So even though you may look like you've wrapped yourself in a sheet to go up the mountain, it's for a different reason. So, so let me see if I followed you. So even though you're not literally going up the mountain and selling all your possessions, that your focus in your pursuit of discipleship and obedience to Jesus has required you to sacrifice a lot of things that yeah. a lot of other people are pursuing. And I guess, because right. I'm thinking about that parable where the worker used the five whatevers and got five back, there may not be any return on your diligent investment, either tangibly or intangibly now, but the fact that you may not see an impact of your diligent commitment to the truth now, there's no, like, that doesn't necessarily mean you haven't been committed to it. Right. Exactly. Just to clarify. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Because I think what that parable is about, I think the money represents the truth that has been imparted to us. And different people have been given to them, have been granted to have a larger, more comprehensive grasp of the truth. But how faithful have we been to the truth that's been given to us? Notice that every one of those receives a well-done, good and faithful servant. The one who started with one only got one more because he only had one to start with. In that parable, I think they all double what they've been given. So the issue there is not tangible results. The issue there is faithfulness, I think. How much have we done business with the truth that has been imparted to us? Have we shined it on, ignored it, or have we done business with it? That is, have we taken it seriously, taken it to heart? and sought to live our life in the light of the truth that has been imparted to us. That's the one who's faithful, a faithful servant. 
Thank you. So the work you emphasize, so no, it's not time just to kick back. And so we all have our work. We have work to do. And you said, like, it's time for us to do our work. And I'm assuming kind of like the parable is suggesting that on some level it will look different for each of us. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'd like to hear the kind of global form or the global calling or imperative here from what you understand. Is it to do our business with the truth that we've been yeah. given? Would that be a fair summary or a fair... Um, of that part of our work that's universal, that applies to every individual believer? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. So that we seek to know the truth and live our life in the light of that truth. Be clear about what's true and what's false. Be clear about what's good and what's evil and live our life in the light of the good and the true. That's the universal calling of every one of us if we're followers of Jesus. Okay, let's go cool off. Thanks.